chicks dig me because I rarely wear underwear. And when I do, it's usually something unusual. Are you worried that recent events have derailed your retirement plans? It certainly made us reassess all aspects of ours. And that's why we're proud to offer our listeners a chance to work with David McClellan, a fiduciary financial advisor from Forum Financial. David's practice specializes in financial life coaching and retirement planning. And right now, he's offering free consultations for our listeners if you mention the podcast. As part of this consultation, David can help you understand your financial freedom number and what that means to you in assessing your future financial plans. If you want to build wealth, if you want to make optimal decisions within your financial life, David is someone you need to talk to. You can reach him at 312-933-8823. Once again, that's David McClellan at 312-933-8823. He's located in Austin, Texas, but he's got a nationwide clientele. Do yourself a favor and get some great financial advice for free and see if you might want to work with Mr. McClellan. I think you'll be happy with your phone call. Hey, this is talent number one, flying solo this week. That's right. No Kevin Dunn, the professional broadcaster, to backstop me, to provide the cushions down below the tightrope in case I start to waver and my lip starts to quiver under the pressure and my pole starts to shake. I'm talking about the pole that tightrope walkers hold, folks. Let's keep it PG-13. And, uh, and once I start to fall, there's no Kevin Dunn to catch me in his arms, his strong, powerful, manly arms and save me. You know what? I don't need Kevin because we're going solo, folks. This is the Everyone Gets a Trophy podcast. This is talent number one, going all on his own like a big boy. And I'm uh, going to hit on a few random stories. And then I want to talk about the mailbag because we do have a mailbag. That's trophy mailbag at gmail.com. And I have done a particularly terrible job of checking that mailbag because I lost my freaking sign into it. And it was like extracting teeth from Google and their various verification algorithms, which became self-reinforcing and self-perpetuating and not helping me. And eventually I figured it out and I've got some neglected trophy mailbag questions. I encourage all of you to please send in your questions, particularly in the off season. It's, it's great content. It's a lot of fun. It's a great way to interact with you guys and all of you I have to praise because you've been sending testimonials about our wonderful sponsors. That's Gabe Winslow, that's Laura Baker, and of course, David McClellan. So we'll be talking about those folks respectively later in the podcast, but I did just want to thank everyone for writing in and I will be much more on the ball now. I've got my password uh, situation ironed out and uh, we're all good to go. Hey, before I do mailbag, I did want to talk about that incredible national championship game last night. The North Carolina Tar Heels, an eight seed playing the Kansas Jayhawks, a number one seed. Um, gosh, I tell you what, if you're a Big 12 fan and you watch Texas play them, you were probably thought the Jayhawks were a little suspect as a one seed. And, you know, I didn't have them going uh, all that deep in the tournament. I think I had them bowing out in the Elite Eight. Um, if you pick them to win the title, kudos to you. But I think we saw a lot of chinks in their armor in Big 12 play. But that was probably also a reflection of the fact that the Big 12 was a pretty damn good basketball league. And you saw that borne out over the course of the tournament. The Jayhawks won the Big 12. And yeah, it does make sense now that they were seeded as a one seed. Uh, I, don't, I don't think I fully appreciated just how good the league was and how uh, how it really tested the Jayhawks and made them grow. Conversely, North Carolina, coached by Hubert Davis, uh, really lacked depth, but had a ton of talent. And they were a little bit enigmatic. Of course, they go out and they beat Baylor in overtime after blowing a big lead. They, they cruise through the tournament uh, and then, of course, beat Duke, their great rival, send Coach K out with a loss to his hated rival. Uh, it was great. He had a, he had quite a sourpuss on his face as he walked out of that that arena. And uh, tell you what, North Carolina has great talent, really uh, good players. But as I said, they lack depth. And I don't know. Well, we'll talk about some of this maybe a little later. But I think one of the things that was obvious in that second half of that national title game was the disparity, not necessarily between the two teams in terms of talent, but between Hubert Davis. And, and self, you know, I thought self really did a good job adjusting in the second half, not only mentally and psychologically getting his team to calm down 
and and basically appealing to uh, Mr. McCormick to stop getting his ass handed to him on the inside. And then I think they made some really good adjustments. Uh, they really got Christian Braun involved uh, in a, in a in a pretty sophisticated way using some interesting screening and just got a lot of free looks. And and really, I thought on defense, they threw a couple of curveballs at Carolina and really exploited the selfishness of their guards. You know, the story of the first half in that national title game was the dominance of the Carolina front line. Uh, Manic was drilling threes outside. Um, you know, Backout is, uh, is killing them. Both of those guys ended up with double-digit boards. Uh, in fact, Carolina on the game, 55 rebounds to Kansas's 35. <laughs> Plus 20 on the rebounding margin, and they lose the game by three points. And a big part of that was the fact that they shot so poorly from the field. Uh, and particularly the real culprits, R.J. D- RJ Davis and Love. Wow. I mean, those two guys were a combined 10 of 41 from the field. They were one of 13 from three-point line. And uh, they had seven of Carolina's 13 turnovers. So you just saw, and you even saw it at the end of the first half, right? When, when Carolina's really dominating because of their front court, because of what they're doing, feeding those big guys, that big Wookiee Manic who can do some things in the paint. And of course, he's a, he's a danger from the three-point line. And uh, they're just dominating Kansas inside. And you saw at the end of that half, even as Carolina goes in up 15, you saw Davis taking some really ill-advised 24-foot three-pointers, like heat checks. And that's not what you want at that point. You want to keep piling on what's working, and that's dominating Kansas inside. And McCormick, I don't know what was going on with him in that first half, but you know, Bill Self was all but crying pleading to that guy to play better defense and it, it, it broke through on McCormick in the second half um but yeah I, I really thought that self did some things to lull those Carolina ball handlers particularly their guard and, and small forward Davis and Love into taking a lot of shots a lot of volume ill-advised shots those guys got impatient and uh, they really cost the team I mean they were incredibly inefficient a couple of couple of Allen Iversons out there and uh that's really what allowed Kansas to reel them in so quickly. Of course, this is the greatest um, surmounting of a lead in in ter- you know national title history. So, pretty impressive by Kansas to pull it together. Um, lots of of stars. I really thought Christian Braun played all forty minutes in the game. He was just irrelevant in the first half, but really dominated the second half. Just not so much just scoring although he had 10 points in the second half, and I think he had 10 boards as well. But he just dominated the tempo. He dominated the pace. And uh, I just thought he got Kansas back, calmed him down, and and really led with defense and and some of his creation that allowed the rest of the team to, to blossom and, and reel in Carolina. So, you know, I don't, I don't want to put too much on Hubert Davis because he is playing with a, a limited deck of cards, right? You, you know, he his starters played 38 minutes, 36 minutes, 40 minutes, 36 minutes, 30 minutes. You got to think in a game like that, that you're going to burn a ton of energy, particularly in that first half. And um, Carolina, you know, probably didn't have a lot left in the hopper in that second stanza, whereas Kansas you know, does have a better bench. They were able to play some other guys. They got great minutes out of Martin, who finished with 14 points, four of six from three-point land. I mean, just absolutely crucial in that second half. And if you see a lot of that was the interplay between he and Braun screening off of each other, running around, being really active. And uh, yeah, I just thought that was very impressive by Kansas, uh, particularly given that their, you know, alleged star, was three of eight from the free, the, from the free throw line, you know, finished with 12 points, you know, really not a dominant factor, obviously had some other great games in the tourney, but not really relevant in that game. And uh, I, I really thought it was a, a team effort. And yeah, of course, McCormick hit some big baskets down at the end. He, he started rebounding. He started playing a lot bigger. And I think he wore down Manic. Uh, poor Brady Manic was looking for the ball, was begging for the ball in the second half. And R.J. Davis and, and Love, man, they were 
they were all about balling and, and putting their name in that box score. And they put their name in the box score, shooting 10 of combined 41. You know, that's less than 25% from the field, taking 41 of 73 Carolina shots. Manic finishes with only eight shots at the goal, three out of six from the three-point line, 13 boards, 13 points, four blocks, by far the most efficient player for Carolina. And they just ignored him in the second half. Uh, it's a real shame. Um, you know, some of that's on, on Carolina and their depth issues. Some of that's on their selfishness, maybe of some of their backcourt players. Some of that's on Hubert Davis. He needs to have a word with those guys and re remind them that that big bearded Wookiee and that other guy were, were crushing Kansas down in the, both, uh, in the paint and also in the perimeter. So, uh, very interesting game, a lot of fun to watch, huge, uh, flow changes and, uh, Hey, that's that. We're done. March Madness is concluded. And uh, yeah, I hope you all enjoyed it as much as I did. It's always fun, even when I don't follow college basketball religiously. And, you know, Kevin and I have talked that we think that the college basketball product in general has degraded pretty substantially over the last, heck, 30 years, uh, 20 years, even 10 years. Um, but that was a pretty interesting game. I enjoyed it. Hope you guys enjoyed it, too. Let's move on. What else do we want to talk about? Obviously, Texas is doing spring football. Uh, some things are starting to come together. I, I think we're going to dedicate a podcast specifically just talking spring ball. I don't really want to commentate too much uh, because really the coaches are putting these players in different situations. They're running out different ones and twos. It's, it's not necessarily illustrative of what we're going to be starting in uh, September when Texas kicks off the season. I think you have to realize they're trying a lot of different combinations. They're also having guys have to prove themselves. You know, some of these new transfers that have come in that will certainly be impact players. Uh, they can't just anoint these guys. That that destroys your program culture. So I think they're trying to figure out a lot of different things. I, th I think they're trying to figure out their defensive approach, certainly. And a big part of that will be how do they deploy the defensive line? How do they carve out a role for Alfred Collins? Look, I've been very clear in my criticisms of Kwiatkowski. And if, if you can't find a role for the most explosive and disruptive defensive lineman on your team, you know, the problem may not be the lineman. It may be the role that you're assigning. And that's what happened with Alfred Collins, you know, a non-starter until he was inserted into lineup and placed on the outside and immediately started making an impact and probably not his optimal position. So I'm very curious to see how they deploy Mr. Collins. I want to see how they de deploy Moro Jomo. I want to see how they incorporate Devondre Sweat, Keandre Coburn. The problem is you have this incredible depth at that interior defensive line position, but you can't necessarily exploit it because formationally against all these spread offenses, you don't want to play too many bigs out there at once, right? It's almost like basketball. You could lose, you could lose some of your balance, particularly against these spread offenses. And, you know, unfortunately, we've talked about the portal being de facto college football free agency, but it's, you don't really have a GM who can go out and trade your second string defensive tackle who would start at another Big 12 school and go get a linebacker or go get a, a starting safety or go get another wide receiver option uh, or go get a starting tackle on offense. You know, you can't do that. So it's going to be an interesting dilemma of trying to get those four gentlemen the sorts of snaps that they deserve uh, while also not just trying to stubbornly say, well, we need two edge players. So we're going to play two edges. Well, if, if one of your defensive tackles is actually a better edge than your edges, then just play your DT out there, play, play that guy out there and, and maybe play a little bit of a different front, maybe an under front, something like that. Yeah. Let's not get all dorky and technical, but anyway, I'll have more spring thoughts as things sort of coalesce. And also uh, I really want to see the spring game. That will tell me a lot. It'll tell me a great deal about what's going on, what we're going to be doing philosophically, and specifically the impact of guys like Marion uh, on offense and the guys, the impact, of course, of Gary Patterson on defense, as well as what Kwiatkowski has, has figured out going back to the drawing board. Because I have a feeling old Pete wasn't too happy with what the product was that he rolled out there last year uh, at all. All right. Let's get to the mailbag, fellas and ladies. Uh Hey, I did have a correction here from Steve. Uh, Steve, it's much appreciated. Kevin and I, a few podcasts ago, were wondering where the expression smarter than the average bear comes from. I'm, I'm sure 
A lot of you were screaming into your iPod. <laughs> Yogi Bear. Steve wrote in, and of course, uh, that is the case. It's, it's a descriptive used by Yogi Bear to describe himself. He is smarter than the average bear. He is a skilled picnic theft uh, thief and absconder, as we remember, was at Jellystone Park. So uh, anyway, Steve offered that correction along with a couple of other people. He adds, uh, love the pod, glad to hear it's continuing. Congrats to KD. Of course, that's a reference to KD uh, leaving Austin Radio and pursuing other interests, uh, which he may or may not expand upon at a future date. But uh, just know that it's a great move for Kevin, uh, both in terms of a personal challenge and also growing and also potentially financially, et cetera. So, uh, Kevin, to me, was a fixture of Austin Radio. In, in my opinion, he's one of the most talented broadcasters um, that I've ever listened to. Uh, I really miss him doing Longhorn baseball games. Um, obviously, I mock baseball all the time. I give baseball players a hard time. Some, uh, some in good fun. Sometimes, yeah, got a little edge to it. But the truth is, I was I I would watch Longhorn baseball because Kevin would not only make it an easy and fun watch, but also I'd need to educate me and was great grasp of, of Longhorn baseball lore, college baseball uh, history, but also baseball knowledge. You know, he really got it. And uh, no small, no small coincidence that he was very tight with Augie Garrido. And I know Augie had a great deal of respect for him. So Katie's going to apply those same uh, principles that made him successful in radio and broadcasting to this new venture. But he's going to kick ass. So write in. Uh, thanks for writing in, Steve. I appreciate that, buddy. All right. Now I want to talk about a very interesting uh, mailbag. Uh, not a question so much, but a comment. And this came from Matt. Matt J. Matt, if you're out there, we love you, man. Uh, he said, first off, love the podcast. EGAT is the only Texas sport, sports podcast I listen to. And y'all do a great job. My wife and I have been considering a refi for a while, so I took your advice and reached out to Gabe. And when he reached out to Gabe Winslow, he called 832-557-1095, or he wrote him at mortgagesbygabe.com. I digress. Dude called me from Disney to talk through our situation and what we're looking to do. Gave us some great ideas, texted me again later with more information, Again, from Disney with his family, mind you, exclamation point, and it was overall great. One of the options involves not using his services at all, and he hasn't pressured me at all. I really feel like he just wants to provide me the best information and options possible. Even if we end up going another route, he will be the first call next time we have mortgage questions. Thanks for the recommendation and keep up the great content. Well, I did follow up with Matt and, uh, I did talk to Gabe about Matt's situation. And uh, this is what I got from Matt just two days ago. I said, uh, you know, thanks for the feedback. You know, thanks for reaching out to Gabe. You know, what did you end up doing? And Matt wrote, no worries. We ended up going HELOC, which is a home loan, on his recommendation, which means he doesn't get our business. That's true. Gabe did not get a single red cent from this transaction. Mind you, calling this dude on a family vacation at Disney, talking through the options with him. I texted him our rate. He asked and immediately called me, told me it was a great deal and said, congratulations. All that work. And he did, knew he didn't have the best offer for our situation, but he did guarantee he will be my first call for a loan or a mortgage in the future. That's right. And Matt's email is not, uh, not an exception. This is the constant feedback that I get about Gabe. Dude didn't make a red cent off of this. And he's getting daggers from his wife at a family vacation at Disney, uh, helping out a fellow Longhorn and a, fellow, a listener just because he's a good dude. Look, if that's the kind of person you want ethically to do business with, give Gabe a call, 832-557-1095. Matt, you're a stud. Thanks for writing in. And uh, do us a favor, Matt. Let other people know about Gabe and, and your experience with him because I think people are hungry not only for really bright and smart customer-focused mortgage brokers, but they're frankly looking for very honest and ethical ones. And uh, Gabe is that. 832-557-1095. All right, let's go to our next one. This comes from The Watsons, plural. Any update on when we join the SEC? 
I think we missed on a few recruits because of this, and the Big 12 officials weren't clearly not favorable to UT. Would love to hear your response on upcoming EGATs. Thanks. All right, the Watsons. Here's the truth. Um, the Big 12 did not dissolve as anticipated. Other conferences did not snap up the most viable Big 12 teams. Uh, that's, of course, the Kansases, uh, maybe the Iowa States, maybe the Oklahoma States, but that didn't really happen. And I think some of that was because of the, what's going on right now, sort of a stasis in college sports. People were a little frozen post-COVID. I also think that had to do with the fact that Texas and, and uh, Oklahoma didn't do a good enough job trying to make that happen for some of these schools. And I think there are ways they could have structured that favorably. Uh, in addition to that, a lot of the teams in the Big 12, I mean, it kind of proved why the Big 12 is is being fled, which is a lot of these schools are not partic particularly attractive to major conference suitors. You know, no offense, Baylor. Uh, no offense, Texas Tech. But, you know, other big time leagues kicked the tires and they weren't necessarily enthused. And that's just the reality of it. You know, doesn't mean they're not going to kick our butt in football or basketball or whatever else. But these decisions are being made about a lot more than a moment in time in your major sports programs, right? It's about potential. And Texas has got a lot of it. Uh, and Texas has also got a lot of TV sets. And Texas has also got a lot of living alumni. And Texas has a national marketing draw, which means even when we're not just talking Texas living alumni or Texas fans or residents of the state of Texas, the so-called t-shirt fan that people like to make fun of, which is basically kind of a, a, sh a shitty version of class warfare. I don't like the t-shirt fan bullshit. Um, anyone can pull for Texas that wants to pull for Texas. Let's not do all this elitist stuff. Anyway, I digress. Um, I think that Texas also, and Oklahoma too, to a, a somewhat lesser extent, has a national brand. And what does that mean? It means if Texas is on in Maryland or California or uh, Iowa, it just happens to be on, they will draw a slightly, or I should say substantially higher passive audience than even Baylor and Oklahoma State playing for the Big 12 title, right? Two manifestly superior teams who beat Texas in the regular season. Texas will still get more national passive TV sets that have no link or affiliation to Texas. It's one of the reasons it's so attractive. It's a brand. I know that word gets abused and overused, but in this case, it's, it's actually the case. So what's the update on the SEC? Well, the fact is, because of that, because the Big 12 was not able to dissolve, you've got these large penalties for Texas and OU to leave. Texas can pay the penalties. OU cannot. That's the harsh reality. Uh, OU doesn't have the kind of money or checkbook that Texas has to throw around. And uh, that's just the reality of it. So what Texas has to wait for is for the Big 12 to maybe blink and lower some of these exit penalties, which, you know, let's don't hold your breath on that but they also need to see if uh, OU can find a way to deal with this or if a network wants to chip in on some of these exit fees so that's what's going on um i'm going to actually ask some questions about some people who would know and see what a likely reasonable window is on this but i can tell you i don't think they want to wait till the grant of rights expiration in 2025 that's not that's not good for texas it's certainly not good for OU it's not good for the sec um, so that's where we stand, the Watsons. I very much appreciate your question. Right back again. All right, let's move on. Oh, I got a nice comment here. Uh, this is from Anok, um, or Anok. I'm sorry if I'm mispronouncing it, man. Thanks for writing in. A fellow Keeling Hornet. What's up, man? Uh, Keeling is a junior high in Austin. And, uh, when I was in eighth grade, all of it was basically it's a it's a if you know austin it's in rose it's right next to rosewood park which back in the day in east austin was kind of always in the news this was the place where you'd find like um, a shooting or drug deals or a prostitute's body found in rosewood park that's how you'd lead off the abc news you know back when i was a kid and that's where keeling was it used to be a school it was burned down i think arson 
in, on the east side. It was rebuilt and it was a magnet school. It still is a magnet school. And they bust the kids from Northwest Austin to East Austin. And Keeling was a predominantly black, predominantly African-American junior high. Uh, the kids from Northwest Austin were predominantly white. And uh, this was the, the first time they came together. It was a brand new school. And it was a blast. It, we had a great time. I played football there. We had a great basketball and football team. A lot of school pride. Everyone got along really well. And uh, it was a real, it was a lot of fun. It, it really was. And, you know, a little consternation, I think, from from both sides of I-35. And it all came together and everyone got along and had a blast. And uh, made a lot of friends and um, got uh, early, early intro and preview into rap music when it was um, really just starting to grow and burgeon in, in American society. And so that was always fun. I was a little bit ahead of the other kids in the curve. And then, um, yeah, shared some uh, Led Zeppelin and some uh, Metallica the other way. <laughs> so, yeah, there's there's uh, some dudes in East Austin who's got, who got probably got a Metallica poster because of us. But anyway, that's what happened. Fellow Keeling Hornet here. And so he mentioned that he enjoyed that little flashback. And he said, I know you must remember Jam Burgers then too. So let me talk about Jam Burgers. Jam Burgers was an illegal uh, restaurant that was set up in a vacant lot. And it was called Jam Burgers. And you knew it was called Jam Burgers because it had been spray painted on a piece of cardboard, uh, also a piece of tin, aluminum siding. And on one of them, it was, I believe, misspelled. It was Jamburgers with a Z. And then the other was spelled Jamburgers with an S because uh, Jamburgers has range. And it was basically an illegal uh, outdoor restaurant. And basically, they made burgers. And you had some lettuce and you had some pickles and some buns and some mayo that had been exposed to the sun for probably a little too long. And Jamburgers was right across the street from Keeling High. And we would go, we'd go to Jam Burgers all the time. And in fact, I remember skipping school once in East Austin. And we went and visited Ben's Barbecue. We went to Jam Burgers. We went to a barber shop. <laughs> and basically just toured East Austin as a bunch of uh, little punk 13-year-olds. Um, and I'm sure the locals were very amused at us walking around in our Keeling letter jackets, uh, trying to posture and look tough, a bunch of little um little keeling junior high punks um trying to walk the streets of the east side but you know what everyone was really cool we had a great time and uh we were told in no uncertain terms a couple of times that we need to get our ass back to school and that's what we did so anyway uh thanks for writing in buddy it's fun to always re reflect on uh keeling the pride of east austin all right what else we got here shay writes in and says hey did you all forget about George Muller, the 1990 basketball team, when you listed the heights? He was a crowd favorite, not considering the 1.0 points per game and 1.1 rebounds per game he brought. George Muller, yes, Kevin and I, uh, we were talking about that the current Texas team is really small. And Texas hasn't been this small in a while. And we mentioned the great uh, Blanks Mays Wright, the BMW basketball team of 1990, went to the Elite Eight, lost narrowly to Arkansas to go to the Final Four. They were a very short team, very guard oriented. Um, they went something like 6'2", 6'2", 6'4", 6'6", 6'7". That was the starting five. Not a big basketball team, but they had a lot of heart. They could shoot and they had, they had style, man. And George Muller was a seven foot one guy, uh, kind of all thumbs and two left feet, but he was, he was a crowd favorite. He was beloved. He played uh, spot minutes would be a kind description. And uh, he typically had more fouls than points or rebounds when he did play. But yes, the crowd loved George Muller. Uh, he did not play much. That's why we did not talk about him or list him. But Shay, that is a good catch. Thanks for writing in, my man. All right. Scott writes in. Scott D writes in. Says, guys, love the podcast. On your prop bet musings, those things are gamed by the professionals, gamed in quotes. The catch is that Vegas severely limits the amount of money you can get down on those types of bets. That's correct. Yeah, Scott's right. You'd be lucky to get more than three to 500 per bet. They won't take more than that. 
I know that for a fact because I went to Vegas once with a degenerate friend of mine who is a uh, shameless gambler, and he tried to put a $750 prop bet on how many turnovers a St. John's point guard would have in the second half. I think that, I think that's what it was. And the book refused the bet, even though it was a listed bet. And I think he scaled it down to like 200 bucks. By the way, he won the bet, which is hilarious. No book will let you bet thousands of anything like that because of the fact that the answers will leak. I believe it's already known that the last song that we played at halftime would be California Love and Lose Yourself is supposed to be the first song from what I'm hearing. Ooh, I don't think Lose Yourself was the first song. So... Who knows? Uh, we're talking about the Super Bowl halftime, of course. So, yep, thanks for that information. All of you gambling degenerates, I like when you guys write in because uh, you always have interesting insights and insides on uh, Vegas. And, man, I learned a long time ago that those really nice hotels and those really nice restaurants and those really nice spectacles, the dancing fountains and the sphinxes and the lions in the cages, that wasn't built on tourists winning <laughs> that was built on tourists that was built on tourists losing losing a lot so i'm not talking about you gamblers who are listeners to, e to the everyone gets a trophy podcast of course all of you guys do nothing but win i'm talking about those other gamblers that allowed vegas to be built somehow those guys lose and you guys always win no i'm just joking but if you uh, are a gambler and you have the excel spreadsheet and you chart every bet, I think for most of you at the end of your lives, when you hit that little sigma, adds all columns, I think that's a negative number. Now, if you get comped a bunch of sweets and you have a good time and a couple of ladies take an interest in you because you're high rolling, maybe a couple of ladies of the night uh, and you have a good time, whatever, it's all good. But uh, yeah, I try to keep my bets small. I, I'm... I put much more investment even at a gentleman's bet. You know, if someone, if I have a dispute about something, we put a bet, um, I'll invest as much in that game or that result as, as if I'd thrown down a grand. So uh, anyway, Shay, appreciate you writing in, buddy. Hey, I have a great question from Michael Vinson. Michael says, good morning. I'm looking forward to the 2022 edition of Thinking Texas Football. And I'd love to get your thoughts on the winner of the last Gas Camp Award. Sort of joking here, says Michael. Okay, let me address, first of all, the 2022 edition of Thinking Texas Football. Uh, Michael, I am glad you're looking forward to it because I am not looking forward to writing it. And here's why. I never look forward to writing any of my Thinking Texas Footballs. Uh, I enjoy having written the Thinking Texas Football preview. And uh, I think a lot of writers can relate to that sentiment. Uh, it's a bear. It's, it is a bear of a project. And I put a lot of pride and energy and effort and, and sweat into it. But one of the things that I, the reasons I frankly write it is I was buying stuff on the newsstands, just like any Texas fan, even though I write about the team. And I realized like some time ago, I know way more than these people. <laughs> and not only in terms of currency, but just the game itself. And uh, I know more about our opponents. And I know more about the Big 12. And I know more about football. And I know more about the fact that that guy you list in the depth chart actually transferred in May. So why do you have him the starting depth chart in September, Mr. Preview? And the answer to that question is that all those previews are written in late April and early May. And they use stringers. They use some local writers uh, and they basically throw together some stuff with some of their staff and their staff is some $12 an hour people that they hire. Uh, and they throw down some basic observations that are fairly straightforward and not particularly insightful. And they package it up, they put some cool pictures, a few stats and some graphics. And then they're taking advantage of our football hunger in May and June that we go and grab anything we see on the newsstand that has a football on it. And I'm guilty, I used to be that guy until I started writing a preview. And then I realized I could create a better product than they could. That's not bragging. I just think their product's not very good. Well, part of me making a timely and informed product means that I don't get to write this leisurely starting in April into early May. I really need to start writing this in late May and through June 
because that's going to reflect the most current thought, the most current analysis, the most current roster, uh, particularly with the transfer portal and all this opening up. You know, there's going to be increasingly guys who are listed on the depth chart or listed as starters at schools in September that are are not going to be there. They're not on campus. And so I want to try to avoid that as much as possible. I, have, I often will make very late edits right before publishing. And uh, I think it's always worked out well. The downside of that is it's great for the reader uh, in terms of the product. It's bad for the writer because I basically have to do 10, no joke, I do 10 to 12 hour days every day for two weeks, a lot of sleep deprivation because I've got other real jobs that I have to do. And this is more of a labor of love. The fact is, if I take what I make on this preview, divide it out in the hours invested, I'd probably do better off working at uh, In-N-Out Burger. But I love doing it. Uh, it's a great bonding thing uh, that I have with with Texas fans and and, and fans of my writing. And uh, something also, frankly, when it's all done, I'm really proud of. And also, uh, one thing that's great about it is I get to partner with guys like Will Gallagher. Will is a phenomenal photographer takes amazing photos, uh, not only the Texas sports teams, which, and he's kind enough to share them with the Thinking Texas Football Preview, but he also is a, a real artist. Um, you should go to his uh, websites, Gallagher Studios, and he's got some amazing, you know, past, you know, just different sort of arty stuff and neat old Texas farmhouses and old towns and sunsets and just a lot of Texan, uh, Texana, for lack of a better term, as well as some other stuff. So, Anyway, Will Gallagher, nicest guy in the world, really talented. Uh, if you get a chance, go check out Gallagher Studios. That's He's not a sponsor. He's just a good dude. Um, Michael continues. Will the transfer portal kill the ca Gas Camp Award? Sounds like a small thing at first, but long-term program guys are invaluable. They might not exist anymore. Michael, this is such a good point. This is such a good question. Hey, what the heck is the Gas Camp Award? Um, you know, that might be the first thing that I want to mention. Um, you know, obviously it's, I mean, it's it's probably the most important award in the world. It's the most prestigious award in the world. I can tell you that. Um, the other awards out there are sort of a joke uh, in any field. The gas camp is regarded as the gold standard. I know if that you put it on your resume, um, you're going to get job offers from, you know, McKinsey, Google, um, various you know plutocratic oligarchs in eastern bloc countries you know they're just going to hire you on to be on their staff right because the gas camp means excellence uh, but if you really want a background on this russell gas camp was a highly recruited o-line prospect from oklahoma that came to texas with great acclaim and then he gathered dust like a salt lake city planned parenthood in 1998 then a fifth year senior he was struck by a meteorite, doused in gamma rays, won the starting center job, played really well, and helped Ricky, that's Ricky Williams, win the Heisman in 1998, along with a senior-laden offensive line that's coming off of a four and seven season that got John Makovic fired. Uh, this was the season, of course, that Texas fans fell in love with Mac Brown uh, and stayed in love with him for a while, fell out of love with him, fell back in love with him, Fell out of love with him and stayed out of love with him <laughs> for a while. Uh, anyway, thereafter, the award goes annually to the senior that no one expects a thing from who has spent much of their career marginalized, ignored, downtrodden, or injured. Injury often plays a big role in the gas camp, uh, but also just opportunity. Sometimes guys don't get that break and they never get to show their wares. The gas camp recognizes and acknowledges those guys who stuck with it at Texas and then make strong contributions. Now, I'm going to get some pushback on people thinking I'm joking that the gas camp award is not prestigious or isn't the most prestigious award on the planet. Let's go through some of the other famous awards. The Oscar is awarded to people who pretend to be heroic or interesting. They're not actually heroic or interesting. They're pretending. And you're talking about guys like, I don't know, Will Smith, who, while being cucked, overreacts to an innocuous joke about his wife having short hair, slaps a guy uh, in front of 40 million viewers, 
40 pounds lighter than him and has his lip quivering saying, keep my wife's name out of your mouth. Uh, and then 30 minutes later is on stage crying, saying Love's make, love makes you do crazy things and he wins the Oscar. Do I need to say more about the Oscar? All right, we're done. Uh, we can talk about the Nobel Prize. Well, Nobel Prize, certainly uh, a pres well, prestigious, a famous award. Um, Yasser Arafat, a winner of the Nobel Prize. I'll leave it at that. Uh, Barack Obama won the Nobel Prize. Interesting dude, uh, historic figure. Didn't do anything to win that prize. Still hasn't, still haven't had that one explained to me, whether you're a fan or not. Uh, uh, you know, one of those awards where you kind of go, all right, all right, interesting. Um, and then there's the uh, the award founder himself, Alfred Nobel, a chemist who invented dynamite. Dynamite and TNT and its derivatives have killed thousands of people. Um, also cleared some roads. So thanks for that, Alfred and did some good gold mining. Uh, but Alfred made his fortune, bequeathed this award and the grant that comes with it, and uh, has since uh, become an, a famous award. Nah, I don't think it's very important. Let's, let's be honest. And uh, we've got some more obscure awards that some would offer, like say the Fields Medal in Applied Mathematics. The Fields Medal goes to the most important mathematical contribution in a year or it also goes to a long historic contribution to the, the field of applied mathematics here's the deal is math even real who needs who needs math like what's the point what engineers scientists uh, architects people that build things um statisticians investment bankers like what are these guys important do they even do anything i don't even know what they do um i mean look i do appreciate mathematics allows you to complete to, to compute a quarterback's completion percentage right completions divided into attempts that's important batting average you know at bats hits slugging percentage on base yeah that's all important applied mathematics why hasn't bill james won the fields medal huh math huh math you have a lot to answer for why didn't uh, Topps football cards win the Fields Medal in Applied Mathematics? They taught a lot of math. They made contributions. They taught me Jim Brown's per carry rushing average. So let's let's all just admit that the Gas Camp Award is the most prestigious award. Uh, now let me name some past winners: Brandon Healy, uh, wide receiver back in the early two thousands. Maurice Gordon. Anyone guys remember Maurice? Maurice was a running back when he came to Texas, went to linebacker, didn't play, eventually got up to about 260 pounds, kept his quickness in first step, and Carl Reese schemed him into a three technique, and the dude just took the three three gap every single play and uh, caused a bunch of disruption. Sometimes you get washed out by 310-pound offensive linemen, but Maurice uh, wrecked some stuff back in the day, and I think he finished like 15 tackles for loss and seven and a half sacks as a senior. And basically had not played before then. Uh, Nate Jones, he was a Gas Camp Award winner. Didn't do much. And then his senior year uh, caught 70 balls from a sophomore Colt McCoy. Henry Melton, Chris Ogbenaya. Henry, of course, uh, the famous goal line back, converted to uh, defensive tackle. The first of two of those in the Mac Brown era. The other being Chris Whaley. Five foot ten Ben Alexander, a, a Gas Camp Award winner. Eddie Jones, who was a great utility lineman for Will Muschamp. Um, Fozzie Whitaker, always very talented, but Fozzie was beset by injuries. Finally put it together and uh, had a great contribution, particularly running the Fozzie Cat. That was a lot of fun. And went on to a nice little uh, pro career. Good for Fozzie. Everybody likes Fozzie. Uh, and then, of course, the most famous Gas Camp Award winner, or the most infamous, depending on your perspective, John Harris. John Harris was so deep on the depth charts and so deep in the doghouse for Charlie Strong and his coaching staff that in the spring game before his senior season, this is the spring game, mind you, dude is fourth string and they put him in the game and made him finish out the game with the walk-ons. He was the only scholarship player left on the field. And they did it as a punishment to make him run because he'd been lackadaisical in off-season drills. Anyway, 
old John, not exactly favored heading into the fall camp. And uh, he freaking like put his nose at the grindstone that summer and ends up working his way up to first string wide receiver and has a thousand yard receiving season after being the fourth string wide receiver in the spring game. One of the most incre- incredible, meteoric, improbable gas camp rises ever. Uh, even made, made even more interesting by the fact that he was the only bright spot in that offense. It was a moribund uh, Charlie Strong offense uh, led by Tyrone Swoops and one of the worst statistical offenses in, in Texas football history. But John Harris was that bright light, a thousand yard receiver. And uh, boy, he had not done much before that. Uh, actually came to Texas as a quarterback, if you'll recall. And was converted to a wide receiver. And as a fifth-year senior, he uh, drops a 1,000-yard season. Unbelievable. Um, so that's the Gas Camp Award. Is the transfer portal going to kill it? I don't think it's going to kill it. It is going to affect it. Look, a lot of those guys who would have stuck around for the Gas Camp or have been injured or sort of buried, they're going to go to greener pastures, and they're going to have an easier way and means of doing it. But I think some are still going to stick it out. Uh, and so Matt's further question is, Maybe an additional award might work in this era, uh, era, something like the hyped transfer that didn't pay off immediately, but kept working and became a good player. Um, memory is a little fuzzy, but maybe somebody like Sean Mitchell. So Sean Mitchell actually was a hyped player. Sean Mitchell, uh, speaking of Austin, Pride of East Austin, Sean Mitchell, Austin LBJ, he, um, he went to JUCO out of LBJ. But he was known as a very good player. When he transferred to Texas, there was hype around him. Uh, and he did play immediately. He split the backfield with the young Ricky Williams, rushed for 1,000 yards. So Sean Mitchell was a good player. And uh, yeah, he didn't kind of come out of nowhere. People knew about Sean Mitchell. But your point is good, Michael. There might be a transfer award that we need to figure out um, because that is going to become a fixture in all of college football going forward, not just Texas football. Uh, further, Michael says, what about JCs? I'm assuming he means junior college. Has the transfer portal killed JC recruiting forever? No, it, it will not kill JC recruiting forever. Uh, in fact, here's the, the deal on JC. Uh, a lot of those guys are non-qualifiers. That's the reality. They were going to have trouble getting in even into an SEC school. Okay. Then you have a mix of guys like the Aaron Rodgers. Uh, types who just didn't get any attention in high school. They're late bloomers. They're in a rural area. Uh, Aaron, in this case, was in a rural area of California, just didn't get scouts out to see him. He's also a late bloomer who got much, much, much stronger as he gained weight and got, you know, hit the weight room. His arm got stronger and uh, he just became a different quarterback. And so that's why he went to junior college. It wasn't grades. Uh, I think he actually was pretty smart and had good grades, but he went there as a development year. And then Jeff Tedford found him when he was at Cal. Uh, so those are the sort of star junior college guys you hear about. It's the, the non-qualifiers and then the late bloomers who were overlooked. The bulk of junior college rosters, I'm, I'm sad to inform you, Michael, are guys being fed and sold a dream. Most people don't realize you don't get a scholarship to attend a junior college to play football. You're paying. And in fact, you're typically paying on loans, a lot of student loans. And they sell these guys on the dream of junior college football. Hey, you're going to get a scholarship to a four-year school, come here. And the bulk of junior college rosters are guys who are not going to get to a four-year college to play football. Uh, In fact, they may not get to a four-year college at all. And they're going to go into quite a bit of debt. These are people who would probably be much better off pursuing a trade, a skilled trade, in fact, where they can make money, great money, in fact. And, uh, you know, don't be, don't, don't be fooled, folks. Don't get it twisted. There's a lot of guys wearing work boots and jeans and an old dirty T-shirt with a plumbing sign on their, on their Ford F-150. And uh, that guy's got $2 million in the bank, liquid. And uh, right next to him in traffic is a guy, you know, with a, a credit card millionaire with a leased Porsche Cayenne uh, who lives with his mom looking over at the guy uh, who's a hundred grand in college debt from some fourth tier uh, Texas university. And he thinks he's the uh, elite guy. And that guy is the, is the rabble. Um, 
Not necessarily, folks. Um, I think that we need to come to a, a little bit of a national revelation on this point. And uh, we've sold way too many people on the idea that going and getting a bad college degree is preferable to pursuing your actual interests in the skilled trades or as an entrepreneur. Um, so anyway, on a soapbox there, but that is the nature of junior college. It is run on a lot of this and uh, a lot, it's run on debt, frankly. And that's a debt bubble that makes the housing crisis in 2008 look like a, a cakewalk. So um, that's the reality of JC and how it's structured. It's not gonna kill JC recruiting, but um, it may pose an, an issue for some of the elite non-qualifier type guys who who may think they can find greener pastures uh, playing portal games and, and stuff like that um, because more and more schools are willing to play ball. So that's probably what's going to happen, Michael. That is a really good series of thought-provoking questions. Um, you, you definitely moved me to think about some stuff there. Um, by the way, if any of you are moving uh, in the Centex area, you need to reach out to Laura Baker. You can reach her at 512-784-0505. That's 512-784-0505. Laura is really good at what she does. And while she would never speak disparagingly of any other realtor, in my humble opinion, and this is solely my opinion, this is my uh, editorial, I think uh, that, that is a profession with a high level of, uh, let's say, variability. And if you don't know what it's like to work with a really good realtor, you'll realize very quickly when you work with someone like Lara. On the ball, sophisticated understanding of the market, really understands how to communicate, how to negotiate, uh, how to help you understand the best way to put your best foot forward, both as a seller and a buyer. Sometimes that can include a little tough love, but it's a tough love you'll appreciate when you, you know, net a 30 grand extra on your house or 30 grand less on what you could have paid uh, because of her strategies and tactics. So reach out to Laura. She's really good at what she does. And she has been a great uh, supporter of this podcast. And I know the people that have worked with her have said glowing things. Um, folks, I want to thank you for your mailbag questions. This has been a ton of fun. Uh, and uh, who needs talent number two? Yeah, well, we all need talent number two. Uh, Kevin will be back soon, hopefully. Uh, he's just been buried. And I wanted to get a podcast out to you as well as address this mailbag issue. 100% my fault. I've got that all squared away. Please flood the mailbag with your questions. And... Uh, I'll check back with y'all later. You guys take care.